This is a Timmet podcast. This podcast is part of the series On the Marge. The title of this episode is Mysterious Ways. Mysterious Ways. Bowing is a very un like activity. That's how I knew he was from outside. When he arrived at our Walnut Crescent Bed and Breakfast, Ron Rinposh put his hands together in a prayerful manner, bowed reverently towards me, and said, I am honored to meet you, Mara, after all this time. I should have realized then that there was something strange afoot. I was flustered, and I didn't know how to react. I hadn't really listened to what he had said, although I played it back in my mind many times afterwards. Instead, I plunged in and quizzed him about himself. I usually waited until breakfast the first morning to find out about our guests. Most of those who stayed at our B&B were from Canada, the United States, or Germany, visitors who came to Yukon to enjoy the natural wonders and the outdoor life. Ron was the first one we had had from Tibet. Well, strictly speaking, he was from northern India, and had grown up in a traditional Tibetan family there. He was tall and thin, with gray hair, cut very short, about 50 years old perhaps, although it was hard to tell. He had started training as a Buddhist monk at a very early age, and then come to Canada to study engineering. He graduated with a bachelor's and then a master's degree from McGill in Montreal, and had acquired a good command of Canadian English while he was there. He was in Whitehorse to discuss the challenges of isolated electrical grids with Yukon Energy. No, Ron wasn't his real name, but it was a lot easier to pronounce for English speakers. At least that's what he said. Look, I said, after I showed him around the house, settle into your room and make yourself at home. I'm going down to the corner to meet my daughter's school bus. She'll be home shortly. Oh, replied Ron with interest. May I accompany you? <laughs> it's not a big thing, I explained. Oh, it's not very far, but sure, come along if you wish. Quark, our middle-aged golden retriever, followed. It was a pleasant late spring day. Ron asked about the radio masts that we could see before us on Hickle Hill, and I explained about the wind turbines that used to be there, just out of sight over the crest. A flock of perhaps 50 ravens had taken up position on the McPherson's lawn by the corner, squabbling noisily like so many teenagers outside a convenience store. In his younger days, Quirk would have chased the birds, but now he felt that doing so was beneath his dignity. He followed along at my heels, pointedly ignoring the squawking flock. The yellow bus pulled up at the end of the street with a squeal of brakes. Out hopped Alex, her grade one backpack bouncing on her tiny shoulders. <laughs> the bus seemed so big and she seemed so small, but, but of course, she was only six. Ron, this is our daughter, Alexandra. Alex, this is Mr. Rinposh, who will be staying with us for a few days. Ron did the bowing thing again this time deeper and more slowly. I am very deeply moved and honored, he intoned solemnly. Alex stared at Ron for several seconds, with a slight frown creasing her little forehead. Then she reacted much better than I had. She put her hands together and bowed slightly, saying, I am very happy to meet you. It has been a long time. Her words didn't register with me right away, but I had lots of time to ponder their meaning later. I was pleased with the way she had handled the situation, though. Sometimes she acted so adult. Well, often she acted so adult. Look, exclaimed Alex, breaking the solemnity of the moment. Raven is back. 
She dashed over to the McPherson's lawn. The ravens saw her coming. They felt silent and arranged themselves in a tight group, leaving one spokesbird out front. Alex squatted down in front and began making very convincing raven-like squawks and gurgles. The spokesbird replied, and the conversation went on for several minutes. I glanced at Ron, smiled, and shrugged silently. Alex had a vivid imagination and often spoke to the ravens and to Quark, and once to a bear in Kluani in a situation that had worried everyone but her. When we asked, she would readily share what the animals had told her, but it usually wasn't anything significant. Earlier, she had reported that the ravens were hungry, that Quark really didn't like riding in the car, and the bear had been surprised. We waited until Alex was finished. After two or three minutes, she gave a final squawk and stood up. The ravens turned as a group and flew off together silently. What do the birds have to say? inquired Ron. Oh, it's just that over on the next street, someone has cut down some trees to build a house. One of the trees they cut down was a tree that Raven used to sleep in. I tried to tell him there are lots of trees around, but he's worried that the people will cut those down too. I think sometimes Raven worries too much. I looked at Ron and grinned, rolling my eyes. Ron didn't seem to see the humor at all and remained quite serious. Is that what infill is? asked Alex. I mean, where they cut down the trees between the houses to build more houses? Do you think they'll cut down all our forest? She gestured at the trees around the outside of Walnut Crescent. We often went walking there on narrow paths that eventually led down to McIntyre Creek and on to Yukon College and the Arts Center. As I set her mind at rest, I thought what a wonderful little girl she was, talking to ravens in her childhood imagination one moment and worried about adult urban planning concerns the next. Somewhat uncharacteristically, I invited Ron for supper. Usually our B&B guests had to fend for themselves in the evening. We only provided breakfast in the morning. But this turned out rather well. When Chuck came home from work, he hit it off immediately with Ron, and they compared project development stories as only engineers can. At the supper table, Ron kept us supplied with a steady stream of information about Tibet, how the government in exile had set up shop in Dharamshala, and how they were planning for the day when the Chinese interest in Tibet would wane. Ron thought that wouldn't be too long, given the internal problems that China was having, riots in the street brought on by the economic downturn. He told story of the Dalai Lama's escape from Tibet in 1959, right under the noses of the Chinese who were trying to kill him, and of the Potala Palace with its thousand rooms. Alex was entranced and asked many questions. When Ron brought out a big coffee table book of pictures of Tibet, she spent the rest of the evening with it on the sofa, turning the pages and sounding out the words in the captions. She came to ask the adults, still at the dinner table, every time she had a question, and Ron was quite willing to expand each explanation into a charming story. I had never seen Alex so enthralled by anything for so long before. I met Ron downtown quite by chance the next day just before noon. His initial meeting with Yukon Energy had gone well but the group he really wanted to talk to wasn't available until the afternoon. When I asked if there were any vegetarian restaurants in Whitehorse, said Ron, the people at Yukon Energy just rolled their eyes. Do you have many vegetarians here? No, I don't think our percentage of vegetarians is significantly different than anywhere else in Canada, I replied. Well, maybe a bit less after hunting season. I guess they just don't congregate at Yukon Energy. But look, let's try the Mediterranean food truck. It's right here. They have some vegetarian selections, and we can eat in the park just over there. As we sat in the sun and ate, 
Ron remarked on the cosmopolitan nature of Whitehorse. I find it ironic, he said, gesturing at his Spanakopita, to travel halfway around the world to northern Canada and be able to sit in the sun eating good Greek food. Or is this Turkish? <laughs> Wait till you try our Mexican restaurant, I laughed. We have an Indian food truck, several Chinese and Japanese restaurants, and the usual assortment of fast foods, but I guess we aren't cosmopolitan enough to have a Tibetan restaurant. Mm, not many places are, sighed Ron. Oh, I forgot to mention last night, I said. I saw the Dalai Lama years ago when he visited Ottawa. He was unveiling a statue. I was at the back of the crowd, but I saw him. I laughed at the memory. That was the day I first met Chuck. I missed my bus, and I was afraid I was going to be late for an appointment. I took a different bus that I thought would get me close to where I was going. And Chuck was on the bus and we started to talk. It turned out that the bus was going completely in the wrong direction and I missed my appointment. <laughs> but I met Chuck. Ron smiled. I'm glad that your memory of the Dalai Lama is tied to such an important occasion, he said. It's like my grandmother used to say, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Oh, by the way, I asked, when are you going to elect a new one, a new Dalai Lama? It's not a matter of election, replied Ron, because the Dalai Lama is now incarnated in a new body. It's just a question of finding that body. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I understand, I said. It's like this, explained Ron. After the 13th Dalai Lama died in 1933, he was reincarnated in a Tibetan boy. It took several years to find him and realize that he was the 14th Dalai Lama. So how do you go about looking for the new Dalai Lama, I asked. And how do you know when you found him? Do you send people out to all the villages? I mean, he could be anywhere. Well, anywhere but China, actually, said Ron. Before he died, the 14th Dalai Lama made it very clear that he would not be reincarnated in China. That was to head off any attempts by China to produce their own Dalai Lama and turn the situation into Tibet even more in their favor. Ron paused for a moment before continuing. How do we find the new one? Well, we have several teams of monks who meditate on the problem. I even helped out a bit myself. In their meditative state, most monks search geographically, dividing up the world into smaller and smaller sections, looking. Some search chronologically. Well, well not actually looking, but, well, it's difficult to explain because it's all during meditation. Traveling in space and time isn't all that difficult. <laughs> I didn't know if Ron was joking or not. He seemed quite serious. What, so what progress have you made, I asked. Are you getting close? Or can you even tell? I mean, it's been, what, five or six years anyway, since the last Dalai Lama passed away. Why, yes, we are very close, replied Ron. In fact, we're more than close. We have located the new Dalai Lama. We've checked and double-checked. There are only a few more bridges to cross. Oh, that sounds promising, I said. I haven't heard anything about that in the news. Well, that's because it's not in the news. Not yet, said Ron. Like I said, there are a few more bridges to cross. Like what? I asked, not really understanding what he meant. We have to tell the new Dalai Lama's family, and of course, tell the new Dalai Lama too. None of them probably even understand what has happened. Can you imagine what confusion that would generate? For example, how would you tell some mother and father that their child was in fact the latest incarnation of a long line of respected holy men, that their child was the 15th Dalai Lama. Hmm, I don't know, I replied. It's obviously not something I ever worried about. Why not just tell them directly and see what their reaction would be? 
You think that telling them directly would be the best approach? asked Ron seriously. <laughs> well, I don't suppose they'd believe it at first. It might take a while, but, but yes, tell them directly. Mm, okay, said Ron, somewhat hesitantly looking off in the distance. Then he turned to face me directly. Your daughter Alexandra is the 15th Dalai Lama. <laughs> Exploded from me. I started to giggle. Well, said Ron, you're right. You said that the parents wouldn't believe. But truly, without joking, please, I'm serious. The Dalai Lama has been reincarnated as your daughter. Oh, come on, I said. You can't be serious. Alex wasn't even born in Tibet, and she's not even a boy. I stopped giggling. There's nothing to say that the Dalai Lama must be male, said Ron. In fact, the 14th Dalai Lama even raised the possibility that he would come back as a girl. And I already mentioned that the Dalai Lama doesn't have to be born in Tibet. The last one said he could reappear anywhere except China. <laughs> but really? A little girl in Canada? <laughs> the next Dalai Lama? That's a bit much, don't you think? I said. Uh, especially our little girl? Uh, no offense, but we're not even Buddhist. Well, if it makes you feel any better, said Ron, my colleagues in Dharmashala also had a hard time believing it at first when they discovered Alexandra in their meditations. Eventually, when they came to believe, they searched for what this all means. After the 13th Dalai Lama died, it took time to find the young boy who became the 14th. Much to everyone's surprise at the time, he was born not in Lhasa, but in a small village right on the border with China. At the time, people thought that was a sign the new Dalai Lama would place greater emphasis on Tibet's relationship with China. Unfortunately, that became very true in ways that nobody foresaw. The relationship with China dominated the 14th Dalai Lama's life. Ron seemed pensive. Yes, the latest Dalai Lama is a girl born in Canada to parents who are not Buddhist. What does that mean? Nobody knows. As your grandmother said, the Lord works in mysterious ways. I could feel the pounding of my pulse inside my ears. So did you come here to talk to Yukon Energy? Or did you come here to hunt down the new Dalai Lama? I asked a bit more sarcastically than I had intended. Ron was unperturbed. Both, actually. I am an engineer. And we do need to learn more about the practical aspects of isolated electrical grids for northern India and Tibet. I really am meeting with Yukon Energy this week. But I am also a simple Tibetan monk who is part of the group searching for the new Dalai Lama. I was chosen to come to Whitehorse to observe Alexandra and talk to you. But you've seen Alex. Does she act like the Dalai Lama? This was a very strange conversation. Of course she doesn't act like the Dalai Lama, replied Ron. She's a six-year-old girl growing up in Canada. But does she act like every other six-year-old girl? What was that with the big black birds yesterday? Does every six-year-old girl talk with birds? She just has a very vivid imagination, that's all I said. But deep inside, Ron had hit a nerve. When Alex talked with animals, it was almost too real. And in many ways, she acted much more grown-up than I had imagined she should at the age of six. The way she talked to adults as equals, for example or the way she had just known how to read without anybody teaching her. I really didn't know what to do or what to think. It crossed my mind that Ron might be some crazy fanatic or maybe a child molester who had seized on our family to make trouble. But he seemed so sincere, so nice. 
If he was crazy, he certainly had a novel approach. I considered another possibility. What if he were telling the truth? It was pretty hard to swallow. Alex, the next Dalai Lama. I wondered what the mothers of the previous ones had thought when they found out that their sons were reincarnations of the Dalai Lama. But they thought it was all pretty far out too. But the Dalai Lama coming back as a little non-Buddhist girl from Yukon, <laughs> now that was well outside conceivable reality. Seeing visions during meditation is fine, I said. But how can you be sure? How do you think you're going to convince us? There's a test, replied Ron. A test that has been used for all the Dalai Lamas. Essentially, we just present the new Dalai Lama with a series of objects, some of which belonged to the previous Dalai Lama, and some that did not. The new Dalai Lama should be able to distinguish what belonged to him in the previous life quite easily. I would like to do the test this evening. Maybe just after supper. I was really curious, so of course I invited Ron to join us for supper again. I explained to Chuck about my conversation with Ron earlier in the day. He found the whole thing preposterous. With difficulty, I convinced him that it would be harmless to let Ron do his little test. Alex had many questions at the supper table. She had been doing research about Tibet on the internet. Why did China think that Tibet belonged to them? Why did Tibet think otherwise? How do prayer wheels work? Were there ravens in Tibet? Ron was wearing pants and white horse, but did he wear a red robe when he was back in Dharamshala? Why not just wear jeans all the time, or short pants when it got warm? Some of these questions, and the many more that Alex posed, had easy answers, and some did not. Ron was superb at answering each one patiently and completely. I wasn't as patient, though. I wanted to get on to the test. Finally, it was time. As Chuck cleared the last of the dishes off the table, Ron asked, Would anybody like to play a game about Tibet? Oh, me, I would, I would, said Alex with great enthusiasm. Okay, said Ron. I need to get things ready first. Maybe if you could go into the other room for a minute. Her face fell. Can't I stay and help? Alex asked. No, Alex, I said. It'd probably be a good idea for you to go to your room. We'll call you when things are ready. Slowly, reluctantly, Alex went to her room and closed the door. Ron went to his room and came back with a suitcase. He opened it and laid the contents out on the dining room table. So what's the trick? asked Chuck. How do we know what supposedly belonged to the Dalai Lama and what didn't? Ron picked up a walking stick. Look, he said. There's a little sticker on each item. Can I come out now? shouted a small voice from down the hall. Not yet. In a minute, I replied. Sure enough, there was a little round white sticker on the handle. The objects that belong to the Dalai Lama each have a plain sticker. The other objects have a slight pencil mark on their stickers, explained Ron quietly so that Alex couldn't hear. Chuck and I examined several of the objects. Indeed, some stickers were blank, and the others had discreet, smudged pencil marks. Can I come out now? called Alex again. I glanced at Ron, and he nodded. Okay, come on out, I said. Alex hurried in, rushed to the dining table, glanced quickly at the objects on it, and said, Okay, so what's the game? Ron explained. The object of the game is to divide these things into two groups. That's it? asked Alex. Divide them how? Like things you can wear and things you can't? Or things that are soft and things that are hard? Well, you decide, replied Ron. Or is it like one of those weird tests like we had to do at the start of school, like where they give you a picture of a dog, a rabbit, a cat, and a brick, and you have to say which one doesn't fit in? You decide, replied Ron calmly. You make the rules. 
Okay, said Alex with enthusiasm, reaching for a red and yellow piece of cloth on the table. With a flourish, she flipped it into the air and whirled around. The cloth settled over her head and around her shoulders, like a shawl in a way that seemed so natural it was almost spooky. We'll start by playing dress-up. She reached for a pair of glasses and put them on, blinked and giggled. <laughs> no, she said, these aren't mine, they're yours. She took off the glasses, carried them around the table, and placed them in front of Ron. She went back around the table, picked up another set of glasses, held them in front of her, and looked through the lenses. Then she shrugged. <laughs> I guess I don't need these anymore, she said, and quietly put them down in front of her. She seized a very plain walking stick and laid it down beside the glasses. These go together, she said. Then she picked up a nicely carved stick and carried it around to Ron without comment. Alex climbed on a chair and put her hand on the laptop computer in the middle of the table. This would be good for writing letters, she said, but the battery's dead. Even so, she pulled it to her side of the table. She worked her way through all the objects without appearing to examine them closely. A man's leather shoe for her, a leather sandal for Ron, a cloth handkerchief for Ron, a string of carved beads for her, a delicate porcelain teacup for Ron, and an insulated coffee mug and a small framed painting for her, a pen and pencil set in a velvet case for Ron. Chuck and I watched fascinated. We could see no rationale for her decisions. The final object was a book. Alex flipped it open and held it up. I could see that the title was not in English. I didn't even recognize any of the letters. Then Alex started to read. When she was about three, Alex had started to talk to us in some strange language. I'd assumed at the time it was just something she had made up. I'm sure I'd done the same thing when I was young, making up words. But I remember that it didn't seem like a game to her, and she'd become very frustrated when she realized that we didn't really understand what she was saying. She gave it up after several weeks. That period all came back to me in a rush. The sounds of her made-up language when she was three were very much like what she was reading from the book if indeed she was actually reading. It certainly wasn't English. I listened in amazement. I glanced over at Chuck. His mouth was hanging open. Then I looked at Ron. The tears were streaming down his cheeks as he stared at Alex as she read. Alex looked up from the book and saw Ron. She stopped in mid-sentence, flipped the book shut, and dropped it on the pile of things in front of her, and asked, Are you okay? Ron nodded, but didn't speak. Alex whipped off her red and yellow shawl and dropped it back on top of the book. Oh, so that was easy, she said. Is that all there is to the game? When nobody answered, Alex asked Ron if she could borrow the book with all the pictures of Tibet in it. Silently, he went and got it for her, and she retreated to her room to read. Chuck broke the silence. Let's check the stickers, he exclaimed. He and I started looking through the two piles. Ron said nothing and sat immobile at the end of the table. He knew which sticker was on each object. All the objects that Alex had chosen had plain white stickers, indicating they had belonged to the Dalai Lama. That night, Chuck and I lay in bed, close together, talking. <laughs> so let me get this straight, said Chuck. Ron appears at our B&B, saying he's going to Yukon Energy. Instead, he's a Buddhist monk from Tibet who tells us that Alex, our six-year-old Alex, is actually the head of some religious cult and that we really should be packing our bags to go live in India. Is that right? Well, it's not a religious cult, I said. I mean, it's not like the Jim Jones group in Guyana drinking Kool-Aid. 
and I think he really is meeting with Yukon Energy. You can check that out tomorrow. A rustle of little feet sounded in the hallway, and then our door opened, and Alex wormed her way into the bed between us. I can't sleep, she said in a small voice. Bad dreams, princess? asked Chuck. No, they're not bad, not really dreams either, she replied. It's more like rememberings of things that happened a long time ago, like even before nursery school. What sort of things, I asked. Remember when I was little? asked Alex. I smiled. I still thought she was little, but since she'd started grade one, Alex thought she was almost grown up. Remember when I was little, and I talked to you about kings and queens and long robes and big castles? You told me that was because I had a big imagination and it was quite normal. Well, after looking at Mr. Rimposh's book, I know that it wasn't castles, it was big monasteries. She sounded out the syllables. Big monasteries, like the Potala Palace. And it wasn't kings and queens. It was monks and nuns and the people of Tibet. How does that make you feel, I asked, almost afraid. Remember at Christmas when I made breakfast from bed for you? Remember how happy you were when I did that? I mean, except for the coffee, which was way too strong. When I made you, you happy like that, it made me really happy too. I like making you happy. If I can find a way to make you happy, I do it. Well, it's like that with Mr. Rinposh and the people of Tibet. I know I can do things for them to make them happy. And that will make me happy, too. And, and is that something you want to do? asked Chuck. Make people happy? The people of Tibet? Oh, yes, exclaimed Alex. But, but I want you to be happy, too. And we want you to be happy, I replied. I still didn't know what that really meant. Letter Dharamshala, India, December 15th. Dear Pamela and Dave, How are things back in Walnut Crescent? Did the people who bought our house tear up the front lawn to widen the driveway like they said they were going to? How is the skiing at Mount Sima this year? So much has happened to us in the past six months. You have seen, I'm sure, all the newspapers and magazines with stories about Alex. My sister forwarded us some of them from Vancouver. The tabloid taken the whole situation was quite comical. We never showed any of those to Alex. We've all been quite busy, and she's been the busiest. Chuck is working with the housing agency of the Tibetan government in exile, more formally known as the Central Tibetan Administration. There are many Tibetan refugees here in Dharamshala, or, or Dasa as many people call it, a play on Lhasa, the capital of Tibet. More refugees arrive every year, and they need somewhere to live. Chuck helps coordinate all that. He says his job with Highways and Public Works in Whitehorse was good preparation for this, trying to get practical things done while navigating the bureaucratic labyrinths of several levels of interlocking and overly sensitive government agencies. My training as a biologist has also come in handy. I'm working part-time with a group studying the effect of climate change on Tibet. The glaciers are melting. The mountain grasslands are drying out and becoming more desert-like every day. That's destroying the traditional lifestyle of many Tibetan people. The Chinese answer has been to move people off the land and into urban areas, and that's causing a myriad of social problems. I spend about half of every day with Alex in what we jokingly call Lama School when no one else is listening. I'm never really sure how much she retained from her former incarnation, but to take over her full duties as Dalai Lama, there is so much that she needs to learn. Certainly, she's fluent in Tibetan, 
and that makes things easier for everyone. <laughs> My Tibetan is coming along, but slowly. We were worried at first about Lama school being a brainwashing exercise, and Ron Rinposh, the monk who first came to visit us in Whitehorse, was quite sensitive to that. He was quite supportive of me attending Lama school with Alex, even though I don't always understand what's going on. At the end of every day, Alex and I discuss what she has learned. I knew that Ron's real name wasn't Ron, but it turns out his name isn't really Rinposh either. That's more of a title given to respected Lamas, generally those who are reincarnations of earlier, well-respected Lamas. We still call him Ron, though. He's actually a fairly important person here in the Central Tibetan Administration, charged with the special responsibility of overseeing Alex's education. It was Ron's idea to have a group of students in Lama school, rather than just Alex alone. Thus, Alex shares her teachers with ten other students, four girls and six boys. They're all Tibetan, except for one of the boys, who is American, two or three years older than Alex. He was born in Kansas, speaks Tibetan, and it took everyone a while to figure him out. He's a reincarnation of somebody, but nobody is sure who. He's here with his grandmother, who attends Lama school as I do. The Tibetans are all special children too, but I'm not sure of their backgrounds. It's really strange to see the contrasts in these kids, who are, yes, still kids, but also deep-thinking adults in their own way as well. This isn't rote learning. They're encouraged to ask questions. They're all very quick and question everything. Yesterday, in between a class on the history of the Tibetan-China relationships and a lively discussion on the philosophy of the Middle Way, don't ask, it would be hard to explain, I don't think I could even do it justice, the kids conspired to trap the edge of their sitting teacher's robe under a heavy vase so that the cloth ripped when he stood up, leaving the poor man half-naked. Last week they managed to swap the contents of my mug full of strong coffee with Ron's cup of buttered tea, much to our mutual disgust. I would probably be worried if they didn't do things like that, but it's kind of difficult for some of the people around here. Chuck, Alex and I live together in what I suppose you could call a comfortable walled villa with a nice private yard, more of a garden in the English sense, out back. There are servants who double as bodyguards, two of whom spend the night in the house awake. They're all very discreet. We're local celebrities here in Dasa, and even when Alex wasn't with us, people we don't know do the slight bowing thing. Even Quark has his admirers and is treated like minor royalty, which, I suppose, as the Dalai Lama's dog, he actually is. He walks with us to Lama school every day. He has his own place in the classroom and acts just like one of the kids, except he doesn't ask as many questions. Yes, it was hard deciding to give up life in Canada and leave Whitehorse that we love so much. At first, we wondered constantly if we were doing the right thing. It required a big leap of faith, after all. But now that I think of it, I haven't had that sort of doubt for months. All our lives are so much richer now. Watching Alex flourish here, I can't help but wonder what impact she will have on the world. I am confident that it will be a positive one. We don't always choose the paths we walk. And like you and my grandmother always said, the Lord certainly does work in mysterious ways. Merry Christmas and all the best in the new year. Chuck, Alex, and Quark say hi. Signed, Mara. P.S. Do the ravens still gather on the corner of your lawn? This has been a Timmet podcast in a series called On the Marge. Instrumental intro and exit are courtesy of Kate Weeks. If you would like more of these podcasts, 
check out the podcast website at timmit.ca slash podcasts. That's T-I-M-M-I-T dot C-A slash podcasts.